All right, listen, guys, I get it. Many of you are unable to financially support this ministry because you're spending your cash and your lives on raising young children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Praise God for you and that endeavor. However, algorithms are a thing. Shadow banning, sadly, is a thing. And one major way that you can help to expand the reach and effectiveness of this ministry that doesn't cost you a dime is by spending just a few moments leaving us a five-star review. Also, perhaps even more effective than that, you can share our podcast with a friend. We hope you'll take the time to do so. Thank you so much. God bless. Let's go ahead and get ready to start. I'll I'll start us off with prayer. Father, I pray that uh, you would guide our conversation uh, this evening. Lord, give uh, myself and these men wisdom. Uh, Help us to just, we just need your mercy. The church, the evangelical church at large, um, in our nation, around the world, we just, uh, we need clarity. We need unity. We need understanding. Um, a lot of us have just been wrong. I've been wrong. Like, uh, like Dr. Weiss said in his uh, talk, I just, I was not thinking about any of these things um, four years ago. And so we just have a bunch of Christians who are thinking about things for many of us, not all of us, but many of us for the first time. And uh, we know we're late. We're late. We missed it. And so, Lord, we pray that, uh, that you would be merciful and catch us up to speed. Uh, but humility goes a long way. So please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, do you guys have... Uh, I'll just read them. I'm going to go in order unless one is just... There may be one that's high, voted up, and uh, and I just hate it. So, But so far, I, I will just go in order of, of the votes because it looks good. So here we go. Um, this is... Should I read the name, Nathan? Yeah. Yeah, okay. This is from Corey says, uh, what do you do if your pastor and elders are hostile to theonomy and postmillennialism and your church is uninvolved in the community? What do you do? Well, someone's got to answer the question. Um, Obviously, this is why I say to anyone when they come up to me with a my elders this, my pastors this. Um, a, have you had a prayer-soaked conversation with them about it? Maybe more than one. Um, B, is it, are you in a situation where you and your family are going to be able to have a faith fellowship if you're not where you are now? Uh, C, if you ever get into a situation where you feel you have to leave a church, and I don't know if this would be the issue to leave a church over, depending on what the situations were, um, but if you do have to leave a church, you must, must, must try to leave in such a way that if you encounter anyone from that church in the future, you will be able to come up to them, shake their hands, hug them, and there will not, it won't be they're going to one side of the room, you're going to the other side of the room. You have to leave with the maximum amount of grace that, that can possibly be, be uh, put in that situation. Uh, so there's a lot of, of factors there. Uh, are they, are they uh, aggressive against, say, theonomy because they've only read the Westminster Seminary book on the subject and nothing else? Um, you know, why? What's, what's, what's the understanding? You know, there's lots of issues 
that have to be dealt with there um, before you can come up with a real solid answer. I, I know that we all could answer the question, but I, just so that we can cover as many as possible, this next one, and I'm going to take the first stab because <laughs> I'll be quick, and then I'll throw it to, uh, to you, Dale, or, or, or Dr. Boo. Uh, but this next one is uh, Eric Flores. Can we get a proper exegesis of John 18, 36? My kingdom is not of this world. That, uh, it seem, that is seemingly the only justification for not being involved in culture politics. So my short answer is uh, there's a difference in not of this world versus not in this world. Jesus never said that his kingdom was not in the world. He simply said that his kingdom was not of this world. Um, and I can't help but think of when he speaks to the disciples in regards to um, other kingdoms in this world that are not like his, namely the Romans, the Gentiles, their kingdom. How do they exercise power? How do they do their politics? They lord it over you. So Jesus says, I have a different, my kingdom is different. It is a different kind of kingdom. But he never says it's not in the world. He just says it's not of the world. So I feel like the proper way to read that is to say, oh, Jesus' kingdom is a different kind of kingdom than, than the kingdoms of this world, which is great because the kingdoms at the time when Jesus came were, were not super nice kingdoms. It, you know, so that's good news. The good news is not that Jesus' kingdom is in the 17th dimension. The good news is not that his kingdom's not in the world. The good news is that his kingdom is in the world, but it's radically different. It's not of the world. It's, it's a different kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of uh, life and not death. It's, it's what Dr. Boot was talking about, that you look at Caesarism, you look at statism, you look at all these worldly kingdoms, and they, the end of them all is death. And Jesus, his kingdom, it's in the world, and it's bringing forth life. Uh, Dale, any thoughts? Yeah, you covered a lot of ground, which I would have agreement with. When I think about the statement of world, you know, there's the ancient world, and the ancient world is gone. And so there's a distinction between the world, like the physical matter of the world, and the ancient world. And we use that phrase, and that ancient world is gone, but that world, the physical world, is still here. And so there's a distinction between the world system and the physical world. And so I think that we need to be careful when we interpret those passages of Scripture to figure out, is it the world system? My kingdom is not of this world system. Or is my kingdom not of this cosmos for, etern for, you know, for this dispensation of time? And so uh, I think that's, that's been very helpful in my exposition. I wish that I had the Greek, and Dr. White is probably already on that. Real, real quick, though, <laughs> I want to... Joe. Joe, you answer it, and then, and then Dr. White can hop it, but I'd love to hear from you. Do you have a microphone? Yeah, real quick would just be, well, that's good. Um, the context in which Jesus is dealing with the question, he doesn't deny that he's a king in that conversation. He is speaking with the Roman procurator. So it's to do with the source, the source of authority and the power of his kingdom. Does not come from this, it's not the same origin of as the power and authority which is wielded by the Romans. That's why he was said, otherwise my followers would have fought to prevent my arrest. So it's to do with the power and authority of his kingdom is from beyond history. It doesn't come about in the way that the power of Rome came about, but I'm sure James has got a, a glittering insight from the Greek that he's about to share with us. Do you want to say something? Well, just really, really pr briefly, it's really, really interesting 
I don't know where this came from. I just clicked on this. I have the Legacy Standard Bible, which is what I've got down there at my foot. And I clicked on the, the note when it says, my kingdom is not of this world. You know what the note, the Legacy Standard Bible has? That's MacArthur's group. It says, my kingdom is not of the world or is not derived from, <laughs> which is exactly right. And what it comes from is what's interesting, they, they can quote the beginning, my kingdom is not of this world, but at the end of the verse it says, but as it is, my kingdom is not from here, entuthen, derived from here. And so it's not just interpreting ek the way that we're interpreting it, it's then expanded at the end of the verse where it's specifically saying, I'm saying my kingdom is not derived from this world in that sense. So I think it's we not, have very- It's not cosmos. Uh, that usage there, right? Actually, no, it, it doesn't. Uh, up above, it, it just simply says, my kingdom is not from here. Mm -hmm. So the, the cosmos does not appear at the end of the verse. It appears at the beginning of the verse. Yes. Fascinating. Well done. Okay, let's do this real quick. I've had a number of people ask me, and now I'm seeing, I didn't even know it was in the questions, but it is. Eric Flores, whoa, two in the top three on the board? Well done. Same guy. How much do you um, pay? No, th this one's really helpful. Uh, it's very practical, and I think let's just try to get it out of the way as quick as we can. Uh, don't just raise your hand. We won't be able to see it. So we're, we're going to have you stand and raise your hand. Um, how many people are actually from Texas? Can you stand? Oh, well, never mind. It's, it, yeah, stand, 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 stand. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Stand. Okay, so it's, it's half, huh? Half the room? Maybe a little over? Okay, a little over. Okay, now let, let's do this. Um, uh, stay, stay standing if you're within like 60 miles of, of here. Okay, so most of you are, okay. All right, so look around 60 mile people. Okay, it's my church. All right, okay, go ahead and sit down. Um, that, that, <laughs> the math checks out. Um, and then, uh, so now back to the Texas people real quick. If you are, um, if you're like in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area, st stand somewhere within a mile. Okay. This will be helpful for you guys. Look, turn around and look at each other. Dallas-Fort Worth, here you go. Here's your Dallas-Fort Worth people, okay? Um, what's, uh, what's another, okay, uh, sit down. Uh, if you're in like Houston, Katy, kind of, you know, area, stand, uh-huh. Here you go, Texas people. Okay, okay, there we go. And I can't cover, Texas, it's ridiculous. I can't cover every area of Texas. What? Down by the, okay, if you're down by the border. Okay, all right. There you go, cool, that's helpful. That's helpful, praise God. Okay, done with Texas. Oklahoma, stand up. Look around, right, right over here, you're next to each other actually. Anybody else? Okay, so that's Oklahoma. All right, Louisiana, anybody? Oh, here we go. Uh, yeah, and turn around right, right by you over here. Yep. Okay, so there's Louisiana. New Mexico? Anybody from New Mexico? Are there Christians in New Mexico? Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. All right, Arizona? Okay, look around. Make sure you see each other. Okay? Um, Arkansas? Okay. Great, in the back corner, you guys are Arkansas back there? Okay, cool. Maine? Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, all right. 
Okay. Um, well done. Uh, California, anybody from California? All right. Uh, go buy my book. <laughs> every, one of, every one of them is a federal agent, too. We got, we got Alan. God bless you, Alan. Hey, if you guys haven't seen The Polite Leader, Alan's got a great show. Okay, so that's California. Did you guys see each other? Did you see each other? Okay. Um, what? Help me. What? Tennessee. Okay, Tennessee. Go ahead. Stand up. Tennessee. Do you guys know each other? Tennessee. All right. Georgia. Georgia. Oh, here you go. Look at that. All right. Okay, so, so make sure you know each other and, and talk, and, and you'll have to figure it out. By, we can't go by county. State is already, we're already doing a lot here. Um, what's another state that I should say? Kansas. Kansas. Okay. What? Canada? All right, well, way to go. Hey, we got a couple of families in our church from Canada, but they didn't come down for a weekend. They, they were like, we're out for good. So, uh, but God bless you guys. Uh, what was the other one? Indiana. Here we are right here. Anybody else? Oh, sorry, guys. Nice try, though. What? Oregon. I'll do Illinois. I heard you. Oregon. Here we go. Same, same as the California guys. My message is the same. Go ahead and, and fight by flight there. Um, Illinois. Okay, there you go. There's a couple. Yeah, so find each other. Okay, what's another one? North Carolina. Stand up, North Carolina. You can't, you can't say it, not stand. Didn't you guys say it? Oh, you're the one who said it? Oh, sorry. I th I, I, you're like a ventriloquist. I heard it from like another side of the room. So, Okay, sorry. Okay, Florida. Yep. Ron DeSantis, God bless him forever. Okay, there we go. Cool. Okay, over here, sir. Right there. There's a couple there, too. Uh-huh. Okay, any other state? Yell it out. We, we got to move on. Okay, all right, all right. Here, you guys first. Okay, and then what did you guys say? Okay, Nevada, stand. Uh, helpful to know how to pronounce Nevada. That was a great teaching moment for me. Um, okay, and then Virginia, stand. Okay, all right, there you go. That was helpful. That's helpful. All right, one more state, and then we got to move on. Ohio, Ohio, go ahead and stand up. All right, look around, look around. There's a group. Okay, if you guys put this, it's on you. If you put it in, in this thingy, I don't know what it's called. What is it? The uh, Spotify? No. Slido. Slow-mo, slow what? Slido. Slido. If you put it in Slido again tomorrow and vote it to the top, we'll do it again tomorrow and try to cover states we didn't cover tonight. Because it is valuable to be able to... I, I get that. Okay, let's move on. All right. <laughs> so we'll try to cover some more tomorrow. Um, here we go. So this is Drew. Um, I really wasn't calling on this to pat myself on the back. Why does your beard look so good, Joel? So, I don't know. Because I'm OCD a little bit. All right, Anonymous, if we are in the early church, it, is it possible, this is a good one, that there are strongly held, widely accepted, even ancient traditions that are incorrect and in need of reform? 100%. Let, let's hear Dr. Boot and then, and then White. I'd love to hear you guys on this one. Dr. Boot, if, if this is 2000 is early in, maybe we've been wrong on some things we thought were awesome. 
Well, the church is always in reform. That's the principle of the Reformation. Um, so I don't think we're perfect. Um, in order to be able to define heresy, though, you have to, in, in order for there to be such a thing as the concept of heresy, there has to be something that is fundamentally fixed, that isn't independently chosen. So I think we can talk about a received tradition from the life of the early church that is significant and important. I think the ecumenical creeds are important. But I will throw something out there for you to chew on. Um, the substance concept from Greek philosophy that is contained in some of the creeds um, is an interesting one. The, 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 yeah, the concept of, of, of substance, as the, as the Greeks can... Substantia. Yeah. It, it's, so there might, be some, um, there might be some work that... Uh, like Plato, like forms and things like that? Explain it. It, it was, has, has, you know, the substance of God, usia, substantia. This was one of the big arguments between East and West was the Latin and the Greek. And how do you express what the being of God is uh, and, and things like that? Uh, and there was a lot of confusion uh, because of the fact that the West moved to Latin. And so how do you translate those things? Uh, yeah. I, that's what you're referring to. Does this to, yes? get into like the spirit? Does he proceed from the father only or the father no, and the son? No, that's the filioque. That's something slightly different. But Okay. Okay, I want to add that's something. That's why they're here. here. So my thought is that we have to see in history that it took a significant amount of time to get theological clarity. You have to think about Augustine who uh, is producing theological uh, frameworks for soteriology and and how difficult would it be at that time to have other theologians who have enough copies of the Old Testament and New Testament to even have debate, to even have a purified discourse of arriving at a clarified reality on, say, the doctrines of grace or the sovereignty of God and salvation. And so it's pretty amazing that we, the average Christian didn't have their own Bible until, you know, the 16, 1700s. And it wasn't until the Gutenberg Press, it wasn't prior to that. Uh, it took, I mean, you think about the, the great confessions, I mean, not just the creeds, but the confessions, the 1689, the Westminster, 1646. And it, it took that many years to get rich, detailed, clarified theology. And that's not that long ago. And so I, I really do believe that post-millennialism uh, obviously was in the Puritan era had a you know, a huge wave of that. But I, I do think that we are having not, you know, the gospel has been clarified. It was clarified in the early church, obviously, and is, you know, re-clarified with great codification in the statements of faith uh, from the Puritan eras. But yeah, I, I don't see, uh, I, I do see the, the possibility of that there's continued theological clarity going to this day. This is such a huge area. I can't even hardly begin to comment on it. I'll just mention to Joe, uh, you, you must, be, must be enjoying it over there in England because uh, over here in the United States, saying Semper Reformanda is no longer a given amongst many of the Reformed. Um, there are many of my Reformed Baptist brothers who have rejected that phrase 
and say it only came from BART, which allowed people to just simply change what they used to believe. I, I don't even know what you say to Rome if we don't actually believe in the Semper Reformanda that the church is constantly reforming. Um, if there is a inspired tradition, uh, you no longer have sola scriptura, you no longer have scriptural sufficiency, and uh, no one has ever defined what the quote unquote great tradition is either. So there are so many things here that I could throw out that if I throw them out, then I'm gonna end up answering questions about them for the next uh, three hours. But um, I think we do need to uh, recognize that Getting deeper and deeper into the word is always good for the church. It's never bad for the church. Whenever the church moves away from the, her life source in the very voice of Christ, um, bad things happen. Bad things happen. If I can add something really, really quickly that I think would be an important distinction for people that's related to what James has said. I think that sometimes <clears throat> we are at risk of confusing the human science of theology with scripture. So that's why there are bad theologians and there are some theologians who aren't even believers because theology and scripture are not the same thing. And so when we're doing theology, we are fallibly going about the task of seeking to interpret the word of God in terms of doctrine, dogma, confessions, and so on. But we mustn't fall into the trap of, of even when we want to recognize, receive tradition, respect various confessions. We don't want to turn, we don't want to get to the point where we've got paper popes that we cannot make adjustments to or deepen our insight into what some of the Puritans or the reformers were doing in the various confessions. Um, I would, for example, uh, think that we need to, we need to, a, a deeper consideration of the human person, the unity of the human person. I think the Greek concept of the, the immortality of the soul, I'll talk a bit about this tomorrow. And the way the Western tradition has conceived of the human person needs some adjustment. Um, there's some areas we need to, uh, to look at, not being afraid because we're coming to it at the word of God, as scripture. And that's why theology is a fallible project that does need to be improved upon, deepened, our, our, our understanding needs to develop. And I think sometimes there's a danger, you know, the pride issue that James was talking about earlier, it can be an issue here, is that we start to identify our theological tradition with scripture itself. Um, as though theology and scripture are not actually two different things. They're obviously related, the one's utterly dependent on the other, but we mustn't conflate the one and the other. It's helpful. All right, what are your thoughts on um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, one just passed it up now. Oh, no, never mind. What are your thoughts on the disagreements between Bonson and Rushduni regarding the Sabbath? Bonson held to a strict uh, Sabbath application. Do you agree? Yes or no? Well, not yes. I, I actually added that. So, but are you for it or not? Um, with Bonson or with Rushduni on the Sabbath? I'm with Calvin. Okay. Yeah, I, I would be a continental. That means I would not be uh, with the Puritans on. Again, for me, and I'm weird, um, if I, stop laughing. Um, <laughs> if I couldn't defend it in debate, I have a hard time being dogmatic about it. Right. And so if I can see a strong case to be made on the other side, then I have to allow for some type of level of freedom on it. Right. 
I talked to you about this in the car. Yeah, so I can't really ch- I can't change it now. <laughs> I was like, you can't get out of this now. I know what you think. All right, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm not a, I'm not a strict Sabbatarian, so I I'd be with James here. I think I think because Scripture is explicit, do not judge one another in regard to Sabbaths and festivals and new moons and so on and so forth. So I think whatever your position on the Sabbath, my response to people often is, you know, when you tackle, we've been doing a series on the Ten Commandments on our podcast and um, got a few, you know, notes after our one on the Sabbath, um, as I expected we would. And um, my response generally was, praise the Lord, if that's your conviction, you, sh- you shouldn't violate your conscience. You need to, if that's your your, uh, what you believe is right for you with regard to the Sabbath, you should do that. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Um, f- for myself personally, um, I think that uh, the Sabbath is a creational principle. It predates the Mosaic Constitution. It's one day of rest in seven. I was a pastor, well, I've pastored churches for 17 years, but I was a pastor in Toronto for 14 years. Sunday was not a day of rest for me. It's a day of hard work. Um, and uh, we can't shut down power stations on the Sabbath. Uh, somebody's got to be looking after the nuclear power plants on the Sabbath. Um, if, you're gonna, if you don't want to f- fly on the Sabbath, I have this discussion with one of my colleagues, I won't tell you who, but, um, but uh, uh, you know, if you take off in one country, you don't want to fly on the Sabbath, but you're crossing multiple time zones, <laughs> you may be landing on the Sabbath on the other side of the world. Uh, so what we should do, what's important, I think, is that we need to honor the Sabbath by resting one day in seven, and then we need to honor the Lord as best as we can. I, if, if you're asking whether I would be in support of Sabbath laws in Western countries, yes, I would actually, um, because I think we've lost a great deal by the abolition of our Sabbath day acts that protected most people from being forced to work. And which day in seven would you pick? Well, I do believe that the, that the resurrection, there's the significance Amen. of the resurrection the first day of the week. There was a reason the church recognized that as the, the Christian expression of the Sabbath. But the, the Jews went with the lunar calendar, so their Sabbath days moved. So they weren't those who, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists who talk about the Saturday. Well, it wasn't, didn't always fall on a Saturday at all. So that's why I really do think that we, this is one we should definitely not be falling out over. This is a matter of conscience. It's a creational principle. Honor the Lord by resting one day in seven. For some people, that isn't going to be completely always on a Sunday. And if your donkey falls into a pit, you drive your Chevy into a hole, call a tow truck, get it out. Amen. So th- this is my thought, and then we'll go to you, Dale. Same, same as what you said, not worth dividing over. Um, Dale has a book about head coverings on the table, and he's not dividing over that. I forward it. Um, if you saw my daughters, my two little daughters were wearing their new little garlands of grace head, head coverings here. My wife had her head covered. Um, the, I'd say like 70, 80 percent of the women in my church that I pastor don't cover their head. I rarely talk about it. I've talked about it on my podcast. I've never talked about it from the pulpit. Um, but that is my position. But this is what I try to do. It's the same thing that James said, same thing that, that Joe said. I try to think, um, could John MacArthur be a member in my church? If the answer is no, then I might want to you know, just sit down, sit a few plays out, rethink. You know, I disagree with MacArthur on some things, but, but is, is this going to be, where, is this going to be a deal breaker for, for membership? 
And so what do I do with head coverings? Well, it's either a command or it's not, Joel. That's true. I think it's a command. So anybody who says, well, this is just, you know, it's cultural with Corinth and blah, blah, blah. I, I think that's silly, and I think that's a bad argument. The question, though, is uh, the practical application of obedience to the command. So MacArthur is going to say the wedding ba- I think that's I, that think, I think that's a bad exegetical argument. I strongly disagree with it. But MacArthur's not over there. MacArthur's not a feminist, is what I'm trying to say. He's not saying, oh, this isn't a command, or it was, but it was only for a few years, and now that we're in 2023, and, like MacArthur is, is, takes the Word of God seriously. And he's saying, no, this is a command. This is how hermeneutics work. This is how the Bible works. And he feels like the command can be faithfully obeyed, practically obeyed in, an, in another way. So he's not saying it's not a command. Doug Wilson, same thing. He's saying, this is a command. Um, and the text literally says her hair is given to her as a covering. And I want to say, yeah, but plug that in for the whole time. You know, but still, you know, he's saying the hair is given her, to her for a covering. Um, and so women need to have long hair. And if they, but notice both MacArthur and, and Wilson on this issue, neither one would have a, a covering in terms of an artificial covering in addition to long hair. But both of them, neither is saying uh, this is a cultural random thing that applied just to Corinth for 15 minutes and it's not relevant any longer. Both of them are saying, no, no, it's rooted in creation ordinance. Like Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 is making the same kind of creational arguments that he makes in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're, we'll real quick draw the line when, when it comes to Beth Moore preaching. You know what I mean? So real quick, we're going to say, wait, but this is creation. Adam was formed first and then Eve, right? It was, it was uh, Eve that, that uh, sinned, uh, was deceived and became a sinner, Right? Adam sinned but was not deceived. And so we'd make those arguments. Well, those similar arguments are in 1 Corinthians 11. So to say, okay, this is timeless. The language he's using is timeless. We're going to be consistent. But in terms of the practical application, I don't think it has to be a hat. I think it needs to be a hat or a scarf. That's me. But for someone who says it is timeless, it is a command, but there's another way to apply it. That's what Joe's saying, just for the record. He's saying the Sabbath is timeless. It's a creation ordinance. You need to do something with it. And even as a society, you need to do something with it and disagreeing on the practical application of of what that obedience looks like. So, Seeing is a gift is important. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a gift. James, anything you want to add or down? Down. I, I just want to remind everybody of the principle of maintaining unity without uniformity. It's, uh, you know, you can go off the deep end on that ethic as well. But in my experience, yeah, we have women in our church that cover their head and don't cover their head. We have uh, people in our church who hold to different Sabbatarian views, but we are you know, we, we know that the Lord's Day is Sunday, and we agree on that fact, and we allow for the flexibility of theological um, discourse and disagreement. Uh, we wouldn't divide for that other question that we had earlier over eschatology, um, and I think that's been a, a helpful thing in our church community, and it can be a very dangerous thing when we start dividing over these secondary and tertiary issues. All right, let's start with uh, Dr. White for this one. How do you refute or at least respond to 1689 Baptists who reject theonomy, even general equity theonomy, stating that it is incompatible with the confession? Well, there's uh, a number of men who make that argument, and I, when I ask exactly why, uh, it always involves some kind of a straw manning of what theonomy is saying. It's almost always some type of assertion that you're uh, mixing legalism with justification or whatever else it might be. 
And I'm like, no, this is the, this is, this is the terminology of the confession itself in regards to the goodness of the law and things like that. It was not um, in 1689, um, and this is, this is, I think, important when you're talking about recognizing the historical context in which confessions arise. And really, <laughs> this is what I was trying to avoid earlier, uh, it's one thing when, when for example, I, I, I did a 13-part series, I think, on baptism recently at Apologia. Um, and my Presbyterian brothers would not agree uh, with pretty much anything I said uh, during that particular 13 weeks. Um, uh, but I also did five weeks on the supper. And uh, there's a major difference in how you look at the supper between Reformed Baptists and, say, Southern Baptists. Uh, I would say the vast majority of Southern Baptists, if they were to read the chapter in the 1689, on the supper would be left going, what are they talking about? Because it's just not, uh, it's just not a part of their tradition and their experience. It should be, I think it's an important issue. Um, but the point is, you really can't, when I, was, when I was teaching through the Lord's Supper, you can't deal with the language of the London Baptist Confession outside of recognizing the things they were battling uh, the confession uses the language which was defined by Rome to deny Rome's teachings. So without that as a background, you're going you're gonna to be wondering why you're saying, why, why does the confession say this is not a sacrifice? Who in the world is saying that? Rome is. So you, th that, is, that is the background that defines that kind of, of language. And it does raise the issue of... Um, what I was trying to avoid earlier, and that is, okay, 1689, okay, we're not, no one's trying to make that infallible. But what if you go back to Chalcedon? And Chalcedon is specifically attempting to hold together multiple political groups with the language that they're using. What do you do now? What do you do when you can take the statement and you can go, okay, this, this phrase was meant to keep this people in the fold and this phrase was meant to keep these people in the fold. What do you do at that point? It's one thing for us to look at something from the 17th century and go, okay, it's got a background and okay, so maybe the Pope isn't the antichrist and so on and so forth uh, in the sense of there's more than one antichrist and antichrist is a broader concept than that. We're comfortable doing that, but where do we draw the line? Is it, is it the medieval period? Is it 500? Where is it? That's one of the questions that I think we have to deal with. So um, I'm thinking of a particular individual who uh, has made uh, a lot of blog posts you know, making that argument, and it always comes back to creating a misrepresentation of what we're even saying when we're talking about the goodness of the law and the fact that if I were to refute that, I would ruin my message for Sunday morning because I'm going to be touching on some of that. But uh, I, just, I just think of what Paul did and the example that he, he gave us in speaking to Roman authorities in such a way that he brings the word of God to bear upon them. My thought is, I think a lot of people are probably in the room, and Joel, you're probably the best to answer this. 
is just giving a clear definition of general equity theonomy. What that is for those that are new here and how that's based in principle. And I just think it'd be helpful for you to share that. I've heard you talk about it before and you're very clear. Thanks. Yeah, so it just, so I hold to the 1689. Um, I'd love to keep holding to the 1689. I feel in some ways my days are numbered, but, um, but as of now, but there, even, even holding to, there are some things that I don't like, even on this one, chapter 19. I know, I know. I, that's why I'm intentional. I'm not going to look at it. Okay, I want, I want everyone to understand <laughs> that if anyone uh, swims the... No Tiber swimming. Uh, no Tiber swimming, but um, swims the lake in Geneva, um, <laughs> that uh, he will have to... Uh, uh, everyone who will say to Joel right now, if you ever do that, Within two weeks, you must debate James White on that subject. Put your hand up right now. You, you agree? There you go. Okay. All right. There you go. All right. That's fair. I'm just trying to help yeah. you, brother. Just that's fair. To give it. Um, plus, I don't think I don't think Moscow has any more room. They already got Rigney. They got Jared Longshore. So I don't I don't think they've got. I think they have Scott Annual on the payroll because every time he writes something, ten more Baptists move to Moscow. Now, so now, I, now. So, I, <laughs> So anyways, all that being, this is what I would say. Even on, so it's chapter 19 of the 1689, uh, talk in, you know, and there's the division, the threefold division of ceremonial and civil and moral law of God. Uh, as it pertains to Adam, what they say is to Adam was given 11 commandments, one positive precept, but also the 10 moral commandments that are written on his heart, right? So if Adam never yet ate of the tree of life, um, but he murdered Eve, the covenant of works would have been broken. And if you would prefer to say it's a, you know, it's a creational covenant or a covenant of life, I understand that. Um, I understand that language. I think covenant of works is simple because we, we all are familiar with that language. It's, it's old language uh, that a lot of people have latched onto. So um, as it pertains to the Ten Commandments, Adam has 11, a positive precept, precept, don't eat of the tree, and then 10 moral commandments written on his heart. So 11 commandments are given to Adam. Those heart commandments are then etched out on tablets of stone at Mount Sinai. The, the moral law of God, the Decalogue, Exodus 20, does not come into the picture for the first time at Mount Sinai. It comes into the picture the moment that, that humanity is created, the, the moment that Adam is made. And so these are Ten Commandments that come before Moses, um, and they remain after Moses. The thing that I struggle with with the Sabbath, uh, and that would be chapter 22 of the Confession, is that I think with the Sabbath, uh, it's, it's right there smack dab in the middle of the Decalogue in the middle of these 10 commandments. So I, for me, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to take the Sabbath as seriously as possible. Um, and, and the Christian Sabbath and that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, you know, did not remove the Sabbath, but renewed it from the last day to the first by virtue of his resurrection. Um, but as it pertains back to the law, civil law, it says the general equity remains ceremonial. It says is abrogated. And I remember talking to uh, Dr. Boot when I picked him up from the airport, and I agree entirely that even that language is kind of tough. The abrogated, because there's a sense of like Jesus, right? So when in doubt, 1689 or Jesus, you, you will go with Jesus, right? So that's a good call. So Jesus explicitly says, I tell you the truth, heaven and earth will pass away before one jot or tittle of my law passes away. And Jesus doesn't specify. He's not saying this, this one little corner of the law. It's, it's got, he says all these laws. Um, and so the, even the ceremonial laws, it, they haven't really been abrogated in the sense that they just disappeared. Behold, I, I am the Lord. I changeth not so that you, the sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Uh, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, the law of God stems from the very character and nature of God. It's immutable as his essence is. And so 
all that being said, even the ceremonial laws, I'm not saying that we, you know, on Sunday, we're going we're gonna to bring in a bull and, and, you know, and, and make an offering. What I'm saying is this, though. The only reason we're not is not because God changed his mind about his holiness. And it's not because forgiveness of sin comes another way but by blood. Apart from blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The reason why we're not going to bring a bull in here on Sunday um, is not because that law changed or passed away, but because that particular law was so perfectly and utterly and with finality fulfilled in the perfect final sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that that law, does, it would actually be a, a, a sign of our unbelief to try to add to it. So, so the, the ceremonial laws, I see it as not even laws that are done away. I see it as laws that, that if we were obeying those laws today, it would actually represent our, our lack of faith in the sufficiency of Christ. Whereas other laws, if we're not striving to obey, it actually shows a lack of faith in, in, in the lawgiver Christ. So moral law, when I'm not doing moral law, I, I'm not proving to anybody that I'm free of a spirit of legalism. I'm proving to everybody I'm an antinomian who doesn't really love my king. Not truly. And that I don't really view his law like David did. David, did you ever watch the Back to the Future with, I forget the guy's, what's the guy's name? He's got the, the, the almanac book and he can now bet on sports and get them all right. Biff right? That's the book of the law. David views it like a treasure map, not, not begrudging, um, uh, you know, obliging, I'm miserable. He views it as like, I just found the holy grail. And if I just plug in these things, the guy who made the world has told me how to hack his world, how to make this world work. That's, evangelicals don't think of the law like that. David is like, the law, this is awesome. I can do this and get that awesome result. I can do that and get this awesome result. So obedience to the moral law, a lot of the civil laws, their general equity are derived from the moral law. We, we don't just do it because we're, we're begrudgingly obeying. We do it because it's a delight. Makes my marriage better. Makes my kids healthier. Uh, a lot of times ordinarily lends to blessing, even physical blessing and prosperity in this life. It's just a good thing. And the ceremonial law, it's not even so much that it's gone away. It's just Jesus obeyed that one so good that, that if I try to even obey it, it, it's been so perfectly obeyed. If I try to obey it after Jesus, it would actually show my unbelief in the sufficiency of Jesus' obedience and fulfilling those, those washing rituals, those uh, uh, animal sacrificial, uh, priestly animal sa sacrificial system. That part, but even that, abrogated may not be the best word. Is that crazy for me to say? How much do you pay you to ask him that question? Okay. Does anybody know what general equity theonomy is at this point yet? Oh, I, I just, I'm sorry, I didn't even answer that question. But Joe, what do you, what, what do you think about the ceremonial law? Should we say, like the you 1689 say, that it's, not, <laughs> that it's not here anymore, that it's, it's abrogated? It's, I think Calvin used the expression, it's been transposed. So it, it's that it's, it, it's still in force in the sacrificial and priestly service of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is today in the heavenly temple, our intercessor, and his blood is sprinkled upon the mercy seat. So there is, a, there is an ongoing intercession of Christ, and that's where the ceremonial law in that sense is still in force, in the ceremonial, in the restorative intercession of the Lord Jesus. So that's, yeah. that's my answer. Great. Do you want to explain general? I, I, I can, but I already talked so much I feel bad. General equity theonomy? 
Yeah, so very, very quickly. So rather than saying that the particular applications in the... So the Decalogue, in a sense, functions as the standing law. The rest of the law, what we call the case law, is made up of minimal cases to illustrate the meaning of the command. So, for example, the scripture says, do not murder. But what's the difference between manslaughter and murder? So a minimal case is used to illustrate it. Now, some of the theonomists would have said, we have to follow the, the particular application or exp expression in those minimal cases in exhaustive detail. And that's the only valid way of doing it. General equity says, well, well no, the, the, the principle involved, so that the, the practice doesn't necessarily need to be followed in detail, that particular illustration, but the principle must. So the principle is valid, the application may be valid, but boiling a goat in its mother's milk, what's that one about? Or are you going to fence your roof in Texas? So we certainly wouldn't in Canada because we make them like this so the snow falls off. So nobody has a party on the roof. So you're looking for, now to be fair to Greg Lanson, he would have completely accepted that. Um, but I think we don't need to slavishly uh, in the minimal cases, the illustrations of an application, we have to follow exactly the way it was done in ancient Israel. General equity says we have to, and the Puritans would have said, we have to look at the principle involved and how does the equity of that principle apply? Now, in many cases, the, um, the illustration that's given in the Older Covenant case law may be exactly the way it needs to be applied right now. But in other instances, it may not be because the cultural situation has changed. So when we talk about the abiding validity of the law, we're not talking about a wooden notion that there's no flexibility in the law so that it cannot be applied to this generation and future generations that are no longer living in an agrarian society um, in the wilderness. So the, the, the equity, the general equity has to do with the valid principle that abides and the particular case may apply directly or in the event that that situation no longer pertains but there's a new situation culturally that it needs to, for example there was no there was no traffic for example to deal with except camels and donkeys perhaps um so that, that there's no case law dealing with traffic law for example so how do we take the general equity of the law and apply it to traffic or the way we build homes today etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah, so the principle is in the law that you need to have a railing on your roof. The principle behind that is that the homeowner is responsible for the safety of the people at his home. Hence, we fence our swimming pools. Yes, and so you, have a, you can take the law and remove the general equity principles of them and apply them to today. And we still obey that law. What's, what's one, two-story, three-story, anything above first story? that someone actually is going to regularly be on that doesn't have a railing, right? What Name one balcony above eight feet from the ground that doesn't have a railing. The only reason we don't put it on the roof is because we don't go on our roofs. You know, like, but, but if there's a balcony, there's a railing. So we're doing the same thing. I, I even think of Exodus, I think it's 21 or 22, that talks about the ox. If an ox is accustomed to gore, so if you have an ox and it doesn't have a reputation of goring, it gets out and it gores someone unto death. The ox is stoned, and, and you don't get to eat the meat. 
So you're down an ox. That's your punishment. You lose the value of an ox, which, which is valuable. Um, but you, your person, uh, is not punished. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and you've been warned, you've received a warning, then here, this, and this is the craziness of the freedom, what, like what Dr. Joe uh, talked about in his talk, right? G.K. Chesterton, 10 laws, 10 commandments, or 10,000. If an ox has a reputation of being accustomed to gore in the past, even then it doesn't say, so the state gets to take your ox, or you're not allowed to have that ox. It says, keep the ox in. So even with a bad ox, with a bad reputation, you still get to have, you have the freedom to keep that ox. But here's the deal. You have to, you don't have to put it down, but you have to keep it in. And now with that kind of ox that has a reputation and you've been warned, if you don't keep it in and it gets out and, 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 um, and hurts someone, injures someone, it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. So if that ox that you've been warned with, it was accustomed to gore, gets out and it kills a, a little kid, then you're put down. So general equity, how does that apply, right? The, the ag agrarian, we're not doing that. Here, here's an application. I was talking about it with some of my friends uh, the other night. Pit bulls. Pit bulls, right? So that is an animal accustomed to gore. It is disproportional. There's no debate to be had. So in a theonomic, general equity, theon theonomic society, here would be my position, right? I, I, theocratic libertarians. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You like your pit bull. I get it. They kill kids. You still like it. I get it. Okay. But here's the deal. I don't like them because I like children. But you like pit bulls. Okay. That's fine. Here's, here's what uh, the law of God would say. It's much more empowering, much more freedom. It would say, uh, keep it in. But pit bull is like an ox accustomed to gore, a sp specific species of dog that we've listed on our accustomed to gore list. So now you can own a pit bull. But if your pit bull kills a kid in the neighborhood, the pit bull's put down and you're hung. And how many pit bulls do we own now? Right? So I would say that would be a general equity. That, I don't know. You guys, straight face. But we can move on. Okay. All right. Here we go. Next, uh, next question. And we've got a big storm, Dr. White just informed me, on, our, uh, on its way. So uh, let's do, let's maybe just do a couple more um, how do we deal with the tribulation? How do we consist? What's the next question? Which one is it? Doctor, is it right at the very top? Dr. Boot, you mentioned the law contains... Oh, yeah, this is a good one. Dr. Boot, you mentioned the law contains gospel and the gospel contains law. How would you distinguish the law and the gospel without separating them? So in the older covenant... The, the gospel is contained in promise. Um, and I even cited the Decalogue itself, talking about loving kindness to a thousand generations. Well, that's gospel. You can only have loving ki kindness to a thousand generations because of the gospel. And don't forget, we've got a picture of the gospel. When the law was given, the plan of the temple is given. The sacrificial system is given, which when people exercise faith and look through look the promise through the sacrificial system and they saw Christ, they're saved, right? It's faith. So with the law there, with the giving of the law, there is still gospel. It's, it's present in promise. Um, and in the fulfillment of the promise in the gospel with the realization of Christ, we still have, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And Paul in, in 1 Timothy 1, it's crystal clear that this is in accordance with his gospel. I would also add that the gospel is the good news. 
And the good news is that the king is on his throne. He's ruling and he's reigning. We can enter his kingdom through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the kingdom of God is much more than merely the issue of justification by faith. That's part of the reality of the gospel, but that doesn't exhaust the meaning of the gospel. So I would say that basically the, 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 the gospel element is the promise element. Law element is the command element, although even that isn't foolproof because Scripture says we are to obey the gospel of God. So we're actually commanded to obey the gospel. So there's an element of command right there in the gospel as well. So, you know, some of the familiar evangelical language we're used to of, you know, please let Jesus into your heart if you would be so kind. We are commanded to obey the, the gospel. So I'm, I'm not, I know that people are so are very sensitive around the law gospel issue that it's sometimes hard to put language into it, but I don't like uh, this hard, fast, artificial division the, the law contains promise, um, uh, and the gospel contains law. So they're involved in each other. They can't be separated. Ultimately, the good news in the promise is that the promise is fulfilled in Christ, and that we simply put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus for our salvation. And that leads us into a faithful response of covenantal obedience, to be obedient. That's an expression of our love and, and uh, delight in God and our gratitude to God. So they are inseparable aspects of the biblical idea of covenant. Law and blood, gospel, command, they always come together. The covenant is always ratified in blood and it has sanctions. So I think probably the word covenant actually helps us to unite our understanding of gospel and law in a broader term. Dr. White, anything you want to add? Nope. Okay, here we go. Uh, we're going we're gonna to call it at um, 8.30. Okay, so we have 10 more minutes. Let's see if we can do at least one more. I think this one is, is helpful. In Revelation uh, 20, verse 7 through 10, Satan is released from his prison at the end of the millennial reign. Uh, could we currently be at the end when Satan is finally being released? And I'm assuming this is... The disclaimer is, uh, the unspoken part is, even within a post-millennial framework, could you still view that as, I don't know, that we're at the end when Satan is being released? I'll read it again. In Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10, Satan is released from his prison at the end of the millennial reign. Could we uh, currently be at the end when Satan is finally being released? So I'm not going to give much of an answer on this, but I'll say that I was just listening to Ken Gentry talk about this specific verse, and he gave flexibility and ambiguity on his answer to this response as well. And so him being Ken and me being Dale, I'm not going to try to give uh, a more educated response than that. Oh, wow, that was it. Okay. Yeah. Wow. All right. I thought I had more time. All right. <laughs> I told you, I start from the top and go to the bottom. This is down there in the weeds, so it's all yours. Joe? Calvin didn't do a commentary on Revelation, and I'm not going to do one either. <laughs> There's too much room for uh, 
interpretation there. And please there don't answer, Joe. There are I'm just saying there are different views within the post-millennial framework that I'm aware of. Some people believe that you know that Satan will be unbound, and it's not a literal thousand years. It could be two thousand years. It could be twenty thousand years. He'll be unbound. Um, he'll be allowed to go and poke and prod and deceive the nations for a very brief period of time. Um, but then he's going to be overcome and the, the church would then go into a golden age in the post-millennial kingdom. All this still before the final physical uh, return of Jesus Christ. That's a possible interpretation. The point is, we're, none of us are touching it. The point is we're all four cowards. Um, beyond that, because <laughs> we're not going to answer the question. No, the point is that, um, that there are plenty of post-millennial interpretations of that text. Some guys will say, you know, it's, it's going to get rough, but it's going to be brief, and then you're going to enter into a golden age. Um, but certainly, you don't have to be a dispensational pre-mill to make sense of Revelation 20. So, all right, um, let's see if we can do one more, and then we'll go ahead and call it a night. Oh, is there a place for prisons in a, the, uh, in a theonomy-based society? If not, um, what do move to? What? If not, what do move to? Oh, it's anonymous, so don't, don't be ashamed. Um, is there a place for prisons in a theonomy-based society? If not, what would you do as an alternative? I'm going to be very, very brief, but uh, it has certainly been a challenge to me. Um, you know who I'd really like to hear answer this question? would be my fellow pastor, Jeff Durbin, uh, because I know he has strong views on this. Um, but that's where a real challenge to me has been because he would basically say, okay, on what basis do you, in essence, use slavery as your punishment system? Because that's, that's what imprisonment is. It's, it's enslaving someone. Um, you would have to have a situation where there is an ability for people to work uh, recompense uh, for, for what, what they did. Uh, I don't even know exactly how that looks. And certainly um, the problem is that in a society such as ours right now, where the moral foundations are gone. Uh, I mean, the things that we're seeing happening, the things that we're hearing being called good that you and I both know are utterly evil uh, how do you get enough people, given the degradation of the next generations through the public education, public indoctrination system, uh, how do you get enough people to even cooperate together to make something like that work, which would make, which would be so, just imagine what it would be like, people who are stolen from, getting the things that were stolen from them back uh, because the people that stole from them have to work to restore them. Wow, what a, what a concept. Um, you know, and, and, and if causing, causing death, uh, someone for the rest of their life having to contribute toward, uh, you know, making up for what would have been lost by that. that, that. What, a, what a concept. But today we have the exact opposite of all of that taking place. And so that's why, you know, you need to have the Spirit of God working having God's law is a blessing. That's a blessing upon a people. Right now we are seeing true judgment uh, because God's law is mocked and not even desired. I, you know, I think that when I hear Dr. White say these things, part of my brain goes to this, man, wouldn't that be beautiful? And it almost seems like fantasy 
to believe in a time where the world would be filled with a form of justice that we have not seen in our own age. I, I think as a pragmat, you know, pragmatic reality is how do, we, how do we even start with implementing that type of system of justice in this generation? Is it possible? Where does it even begin? And it brings me back to this concept of localism there's been obviously a huge conversation about nationalism. Uh, my, my theory is that global fruitfulness always comes from local faithfulness. And I think that we need to get small towns that have the freedom within the sphere of the government that we have to implement degrees of this type of rule and justice and authority because cities and towns have a degree of sovereignty to make laws and when you have a town of you know, 2,000 people and you have a flourishing church there that preaches the gospel, you actually have an opportunity to, to really implement this stuff in a way that becomes very real and I think shows the fruit. I mean, we've seen the stories of you know, certain cities that have certain mayors and certain sheriffs that punish harshly and how crime goes you know, way down, or you have to own a gun in this county and how there's like no burglaries in, in that county. Or you know, we've seen those things tested. I think Christians need to think about that pragmatically. How do we get that kick-started in our towns? Now, some of you guys live in big cities, and I know that could be an overwhelming reality. And this is why I think that actually there's a strategy. I mean, Joel's book and uh, Fight by Flight, where can you go if we go back to Jim Wilson's concept of, you know, finding towns that are not just takeable but worth taking? Um, and the concept of, of, you know, I used to live in Oregon. There's a town called Brothers, Oregon. It was like 11 people that lived there. It's takeable. It's not worth taking because it have the influence of 11 people. Um, but, you know, New York City, it's worth taking, but it's probably not takeable. And so it'll take you. It'll take you. Yeah. And That's so a Tim Keller shout out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so how can you guys find locations where you can get involved in city council and get involved at the local level where you can actually fight for implementation? And it might not happen in your generation, but it might happen in the next generation if you fight hard enough to get your children uh, positions of authority. And so I, I think about this whole discussion of going, how do I, I'm a ruthless implementer. And so I want to figure out ways that we can actually see some of this, throw it against the wall and see what sticks and see if we can make some momentum. That was really helpful. Joe. Um, prisons are not a biblical idea. So prison is only for temporary custody while you await trial. The warehousing of criminals so that they can become better criminals is not a scriptural idea. Recidivism rates in the United States, in Great Britain, Canada, are off the charts. What is the worldview underlying the prison system, the penitentiary? A humanistic idea, basically, that the human being is a tabula rasa, is a, uh, originally is a blank slate. And if you isolate somebody from their environment, what causes them to commit crime is their environment. So if you remove them from their environment and you make them penitent, the penitentiary, you isolate them from that environment and then, they, as a, then you wipe the slate clean again and then they are uh, 
rehabilitated and set back into uh, society. It doesn't work because the issue of crime is not primarily the environment, right? The issue of sin is, sin is not in the environment, it's in the person. Environment may give opportunity for sin, but it isn't the environment that is sinful. So the, uh, the, if you, the penitentiary originally was set up pretty much like a monastery. You have a cell, like a monk, and so you're, you're, you're in that environment where you're, in a sense, put under discipline within the humanistic monastery, the penitentiary, so that you can be cleansed and released uh, back into society. Um, the, the, the prison industry now has, has literally become just that. It is an industry um, that uh, contractors make a great deal of money from. And the prison system doesn't actually deal with the issue of restitution, as James pointed out. Instead, it punishes the community because it costs about $100,000 a year to keep a prisoner in jail. So it costs the taxpayer. So instead of the victim being compensated, the community is punished as well. So the biblical ideal is there may be temporary custody before trial, and then it's either financial restitution, which you have to work off. So that means you're put to work. You have to work it off. You make the appropriate restoration. Or there's corporal punishment. It's an interesting survey done in Canada a few years ago asking prisoners whether they would rather be warehoused in jail or take the birch so they could be released back into society. They opted for the birch. Explain the birch. Rods? Yeah. To, to I was going to say rods. If nobody brought up rods, rods have to be in, the, in this answer. Go ahead. So uh, basically, you, you, it's a... It's, it would have been military discipline like it was in the 19th century. You, you, you get the birch, you whipped. Um, these prisoners uh, who were uh, part of this survey said they'd rather take a short-term whipping than be warehoused in a jail. Um, that system, of course, is being taken advantage of now because with the whole trans movement, if I say, well, I'm a woman, I can then go into it, and there was a big, con you know, the, the leader of the SNP, the Scottish National Party in Scotland, in the last few weeks lost her role as the leader of Scotland because she was advocating for basically a trans rapist who was in women's prisons raping women. I mean, that's, this is where it's actually come to. The prison system is a disaster. So it's temporary custody, restitution, corporal punishment, or if the crime is capital, execution. Now, the U.S. used to have the three strikes and you're out. If you're an incorrigible delinquent and you committed multiple violent crimes, it didn't matter if you were a murderer or not, you could face the death penalty. And uh, the, the fact that the death penalty has been in steep decline... It's interesting that the people who still can attract the death penalty, and that is for if you kill a prison officer or you kill a police officer. So state life is valuable, right? If you're in service to the state. Those, those were the death penalties we held on to longest. Treason against the state. In Canada, <clears throat> until 1950, similar in the UK, you could be executed for rape. So it would cost the taxpayer a lot less if we actually executed murderers, because the scripture says they are to be executed, period. 
and we should be looking at the death penalty for other capital crimes. Uh, rape. When, they, when a survey was done in, again in Canada, they followed about 300 prisoners who were violent offenders uh, who were rehabilitated in the system. Ten years later, those 300, I document this in the mission of God, ten years later, I think it actually may have been less than ten years, but thereabouts, those 300 criminals had committed 312 homicides. So because we didn't follow biblical law, over 300 people lost their lives. So uh, capital uh, offenses that have been, except for, for if you attack the state, they've done, they've done this because we no longer value the family. What do you think would happen to the, 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 pan, the, the endemic problem of rape now in, in Western culture if people started getting the death penalty for rape again? What do you think would happen to the rates of rape in our society? Rape should, 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 should be, again, a capital offense. And with that, though, the only way that you can do it justly is it also has to be, if you accuse someone of rape and you're lying, you get the death penalty. Right, so perjury laws go along with that. the Me Too thing, too. Yeah, the per in other words, per adults have to be in, in charge. Yeah, that's right. Not, not the children we have today. Yeah. So that's a really important point, that perjury we no longer take seriously. You know, in the U.S., if you were an atheist in the past, you couldn't actually uh, give testimony in a court of law because you couldn't swear on anything higher than yourself, right? So oaths in the courts, perjury is a, is a critical issue. So I know I've meandered on that, but the point is, and it sounds like Dale wants to say something else, but I'm on a roll here. So the... the Temporary custody, awaiting trial, the vast majority of crimes which people are in prison today would be restitution. And then they're restored to the community. None of this nonsense about, oh, criminal records, you can't get this job, you can't do that. You gotta... People are penalized for relatively, uh, very often petty crimes, end up in the prison system, fall in with the wrong crowd, their criminality becomes worse, or they join the Islamic Brotherhood, whatever, because that's the biggest recruiting ground for that, by the way, uh, especially in the United Kingdom. People who have committed crimes that have not attracted the, the death penalty should be restored to the community. They should not be dragging around records for the rest of their lives so they can't travel and do this, that, and the other, which is a form of endless punishment. This is a kind of, I think prisons are a kind of cruel and unusual punishment, and then you drag around a criminal record the rest of your life. Pay the debt, make restitution, be restored to the community, and actually the death penalty, we used to say in England when somebody's capital crime attracted the death penalty, it would say on their gravestone, so-and-so was justified on such-and-such -such a date. Paid. Right? I'm not saying it defined their relationship with God, but they were given an opportunity to deal with that while they stood under the rope. Right? The threat of execution sharpens the mind. Plenty of people came to Christ standing uh, by the gallows. So this is a much more compassionate system. It's compassionate to victims. It, re it restores people to community and to, and to society. How to get there, which is Dale's practical point. Well, I think Chuck Colson made a good start 
with the whole idea of restorative uh, engagement with the, 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 the criminal having to meet with the victim where the victim was willing to do that and begin the process of trying to make restitution. And um, until we get back to that, we're not going to solve the, 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 the issue of America's overcrowded prisons, the overcrowded prisons throughout the Western world. Um, we, have to get, we have to get back to a biblical model, and that does, it's going to involve the whole community. And, uh, and, and, and that's the challenge. I, I heard a quote years ago, and I'm going to botch it, but it's, World War II was not started in the offices of generals and lieutenants and colonels, but on the desks of the university professors and the student body. Now, today, we find ourselves in a situation where culture follows social media. Uh, we are deciding the future based off of the social discussion on the internet. That's why I actually tell more men to get on the internet so many women are on social media and the men are absent and we we need more men to be standing for truth and bringing logic to bear on some of those conversations that being said when i hear dr boot share this i think about the wisdom and the the logic that comes with his his statements i'm sure many of you are thinking yes that's that's a way better system it's more compassionate i appreciate that uh my thought is uh with the internet and with the ability to broadcast this type of content in a way that we couldn't do maybe 20 years ago, as we talked about last night at dinner, we have access to further these ideas at a rate that has never been possible prior. And so I think getting people stage time, helping people like Joe build platform, supporting his ministry, uh, getting books like Rush Dooney's stuff in audio and getting it in accessible formats for people, because th this is really the battle right now, is how do we get these ideas to get more exposure and be taken seriously? Because they're actually good ideas, because they're God's ideas. And I think we can trust in the gradual uh, fruitfulness that will come as a result of that. Great. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're going to want to hear this. Our next two conferences are coming up quick. We've got first our fall conference. This is November 11th and 12th. That's a full day Saturday and a holdover for the Lord's Day, November 12th. Uh, who's speaking at this conference? Well, we've got Jared Longshore and Chris Wiley and yours truly, Pastor Joel Webbin. What's the title? The title is The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Now, I know you're thinking, wait a second, you can't use that title, Joel. That's the title for Chris Wiley's book. Well, I can use it because he's going to be there speaking and he gave me his permission. We're going to be talking about the household as the basic building block for pushing back the kingdom of darkness in this world. We're going to be talking about biblical patriarchy. We're going to be talking about marriage and parenting, how to keep your kids, how to shape and form them like straight arrows, like sharp arrows that do damage to the kingdom of darkness, training our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. A full day on Saturday, November 11th, and then holding Jared Longshore over for the Lord's Day, November 12th, to preach at my church, Covenant Bible Church, in Central Texas. You can register at the early bird rate, which will not last long, but you can register at the 
early bird rate today by going to rightresponseconference.com. Again, that's rightresponseconference.com. Now, our second conference is our spring conference. This is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. The title for this conference, Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. We don't want to revert back to Christendom 1.0, although it would certainly be a whole lot better than the clown world that we're currently living in. But we recognize, despite the phenomenal features of a prior Christendom, there were certain bugs that we'd like to see worked out. So we're not going back. We are pushing forward to Christendom 2.0. We believe that the blueprints are seven doctrines for ruling the world righteously. What are these seven doctrines? Well, it's reformed confessionalism. It's covenant theology. It's biblical patriarchy. It's presuppositionalism and Kuyperianism and general equity theonomy and hopeful eschatology post-millennialism. Who's going to be teaching us on these doctrines? Voldemort, he who must not be named, Pastor Douglas Wilson himself. You also got Mr. Bright Hearth, Mr. Kings Hall, Mr. Haunted Cosmos, Pastor Brian Sauvé. And we also have Dr. Joseph Boot and, of course, yours truly, Pastor Joel Webbin. We'll be doing seven primary lectures as well as two 90-minute panels with all the speakers together, and we'll likely add a couple more speakers along the way. Again, that's March 1st, second and third, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. We've got the early bird rate going right now, but it will run out quickly. So go to rightresponseconference.com, rightresponseconference.com to register today.